skirting shores thinking world flat, and with the island girls in celebration of new religion. Nobody led me or said this way. I sailed alone on makeshift raft with wind as companion. Fate for deliverance, confidence enough to assess new disposition. Seekers of lost paradise may seem fools to those who never sought the other world. Welcome to Momentary Zen with Zen Garcia. Visit www.fallenangels.tv. You're listening to Revolution Radio. Hello, man. Welcome, everybody. It's great to see you all tonight. I'm your host. Justin James Garcia, son of Zen Garcia, who's taking the night off. And tonight we will be continuing with our series, Ask Me Anything, with author and researcher Gary Wayne. Brother Gary, are you with us? I am, and uh, happy to be back, back for another show. So very much looking forward to answering the questions tonight. Yeah, I'm really excited. I heard that there was an update on your new book. Could you please let us know? An update on it? Uh, well, we're still working. I just uh, sent in the second round of uh, edits, which is called a tech edit, and that took a little longer than I sort of anticipated. So an update now would be October, worst case, hopefully November. Uh, so it's uh, moving through the process, but it's a, it's a slow process for publishing. So I wish it was out in August, but it's not. Um, and then we were looking for September, but it looks like by the time we get everything done on it, it's going to be probably October for sure. And it's moving over to typeset right away. So we'll see, but I think it's more like October. Yeah, that's awesome. The process is almost complete. It must be a really exciting time for you. I know after you finish a big project like that, especially a book the size of the ones that you uh, author that's definitely a feeling of success and relief and yeah i'm really excited for you to get that one done and get that one out there and i know everyone else is excited to be able to grab a copy of that for themselves if they were interested in grabbing a copy where could they do that and where could they also find part one of your awesome uh, series the genesis 6 conspiracy so the first thing is, is that if somebody wants to be notified with a firm price and a release date for the new book, once I have that, uh, I will send it to you. Just email me. You don't even have to write, uh, write anything on it. Just email me at genesis6conspiracypart2 at gmail.com. And it'll be sitting there. And as soon as I have the information in terms of release date, where you can buy it, price points, all of that information, uh, I will email you that notification. So I'm hoping to have a pre-book up for it on my website uh, with a firm price as soon as I get that number. Um, I'm hoping for sometime this month. Uh, worst case is probably going to be September, but I'll have that firm price. And I probably will put that out at the same time as I get the firm date. So I'm not sending two emails out to people on this. So that's kind of what we're looking for. And I will be putting up, I'm just working on it right now. Um, now that we're through the tech edit, I'm putting up a 
sort of a uh, excerpt like I did on the first book on on the website. So there'll be a generous excerpt of all 84 chapters up in this book. And so the book will be available through my website, genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6 with the number 6, conspiracy.com. And you can go to the Buy Now page for both the part one or for part two when it comes out. And I'm hoping to also put in there uh, some bum, uh, bundling packaging for buying of both books and multiple quantities. So that'll be part of the new website update as well. Uh, both books will be available on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, BarnesandNoble.com, most uh, online bookstores, and hoping to get that back on shelves in some of the um, mortar and brick stores and hoping that that will all be part of how you can get a hold of the book. And if you're looking to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me through my website as well uh, on the contact Gary Wayne for an interview. Uh, that's my email address. Just click on that. It may take me a couple of months to get back to you, but I will get back to you. I'm hoping to have a clear contact the author one put up on the update on the website as well. So all things that we're working on is we're moving down to crunch date to get the book out so getting more excited as we go yeah it is a really exciting time i uh, definitely looking forward to being able to get a copy of that uh, could you please give a, a quick rundown just a you know a uh, just a 30 second snippet of what exactly your books cover and what encouraged you to write them yeah, I mean, both are kind of about the same topic. They come at it from different angles, but I would say the elevator version of it is it is the uh, telling of a 6,000-year conspiracy that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation about into the fallen angels, the house of dragon, how they brought about the first apocalypse, what they did to take over the post-Diluvian epoch and how they planned to bring about uh, the end times. And I should also include secret societies are a big part of that as well. And I got on to this topic because I thought I would write a short book, uh, see whether I could get published because I have a lot of other books I also want to publish as well. So when I went to write the first one, it was, can I connect Genesis 6? with uh, Revelation in terms of the giants, the fallen angels, and the demons, and all of the supernatural activity that goes on in the end times. So, so that's how I got started on the route, and uh, I never thought I would write a sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy, but uh, it seems like uh, it was the right thing to do, and I'll be getting back on the third book uh, and trying to get that one done as soon as I'm through this book. Okay, okay. I, I got to stop you there. You said third book? Did I hear that properly? There's a, a third book planned? Yes, I'm actually, I was 300 pages into it uh, when wow. I decided to put it aside and do the uh, sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy. So I'm going to go, I, I think I needed to do that. Uh, I, I was struggling with the format and how I was trying to go from point A to point B. And I think doing the new format, what I did on part two of the, of the Genesis 6 conspiracy, you know, just giving me the framework to, to get back and get that one out in, um, you know, as fast as it can be done, because it's going to be, it's going to be a fairly large book and heavily detailed as well. That 
is really exciting. I, I just <laughs> can't believe you had a 300-page book that you put on pause. But yeah, I guess with a a mind like yours and the amount of research you do, you probably have a ton of content out there just waiting to be organized and presented to everyone. So we appreciate all of your efforts that you put forth. And we thank you for joining us on this Ask Me Anything series. This is uh, episode 49. That's a, a lot of episodes that you've done. That's almost 100 hours of content that you have put out. So definitely uh, some amazing information that is stored here uh, just on this channel. I know you do a lot of shows and uh, always a pleasure to be able to to catch those with whoever you're speaking with. You always bring forth a lot of information. and I'm excited to get into the questions for tonight and to get your answers. All right, so we'll move into the first question. Oh, before we do, let me just uh, let everyone know over in the chat over at youtube.com slash Garcia. Shalom to you all. Hello, and I pray that you're having a blessed evening. If you do have a question for Brother Gary, please do write it there in the chat. Just like uh, Quicks Hayat put in there and Daniel Sullivan uh, and Donna Smith. Write question in all caps right there at the beginning. That way I know that this is a question that you want to be added to the list. We should have time uh, after the pre-made list of 12 questions to get into all of the questions from the live chat. If we do not get into your questions from the live chat tonight, they will roll over and they will become the pre-made list for next month. All right, so without further ado, let's get into it. The first question comes from Daniel Sullivan. Question, in Revelation eleven nineteen, with the seventh trumpet, trumpet signaling rapture, when God's temple opens and the ark may be seen, will we see it? Is this part of the ensign of Jesus? Will it remain until the rapture? Uh, a very, very good question uh, by Daniel. And... He used a, a word in the question called ensign, and that comes from the Old Testament uh, in terms of talking about the sign in the time of the trumpets. And so Jesus' sign that's talked about in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and uh, the book of Luke is has cognate verses for prophecy and fulfillment of what's going to take place with Israel and the tribe of Judah in the end time. And the word is ensign that is used, and it's used in conjunction with the trumpets and also standard and banner as well. So if somebody's looking in the King James Version Bible and they start to run across that, or you can get a hold of me, I have a two-part document on uh, signs, ensigns, standards, and banners uh, that I can send you because it's just so amazing to see how perfection plays out between the Old and the New Testament with its consistency. And so those are cognate words for Jesus's sign. And so the Ark of the Covenant is obviously related with the tribe of Judah and the tribes of Israel. And when I say that, that's sort of talking after they split, but all of the tribes of Israel, with Israel being the northern kingdom and Judah being the southern kingdom, and the Israel northern tribes still being lost, but will be awakened in the end time. So that's a really good question is if you've got the sign that's being talked about in both testaments and the Ark of the Covenant was a significant part of the Holy Covenant and was provided 
to Israel to not only lead them in war and in the Exodus, but also to be used later to be in communication uh, in part with uh, inside the Holy of Holies with with God of the Bible. And then in Revelation 19, in 1119, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant being in heaven. I expect we're going to see counterfeit Ark of the Covenants that will come about in the end time. And all the instructions are there in the Bible to create a counterfeit. I think Antichrist counterfeits everything, so he's probably going to have a counterfeit Ark of the Covenant after he declares himself to be God in the temple at the midpoint of the last seven years and counterfeits everything that Jesus does. So in this passage, the Ark of the Covenant is shown in heaven. Um, historically, we don't get accounts of the Ark of the Covenant past the uh, first temple. So it's not used or seen in, in the second temple era, uh, starting after the, you know, the Babylon diaspora is over and Judah comes back. back. Uh, and in the Apocrypha of the Old King James Version Bible, um, it says that uh, Jeremiah actually takes the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple at the time of the Babylonian invasion and hides it in a cave or in a hole on a mountain somewhere. So will we see it in the end time is the question that Daniel is asking. Um, I think not at the time of rapture and not as part of that first sign. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't come back with a sign in in the other parts of his visitation. Uh, and in Hosea 9, 7, it talks about the visitations of, of, of Jehovah or, or Jesus. And so he's going to come back for second exodus. So will we see it at the time of second exodus? Perhaps. We don't get scripture saying that it, that we're going to see it then the only two times it shows up in the new testament is hebrews 9 4 and in revelation eleven nineteen. so and none of them are saying that it will appear in the end time but it's a distinct possibility when you know that the original exodus had the ark of the covenant uh, and it was built during the exodus so we also know in revelation 12 that we get language like the second exodus with judah being taken on the wings of Eng uh, of eagles just as israel was uh, described in the exodus in the same manner on the wings of eagle they were being saved so it might happen then and if not for then if not then it might happen as well in the time of revelation 19 and the war of Armageddon, because again, just as Joshua and Moses led the battle in the Exodus Wars, the giant wars, to retake the covenant land that was bequeathed to Israel from God, you know, Joshua saw um, an angel with a sword before him uh, that, that uh, some people say might be Michael, but this being didn't command 
Joshua not to worship him. And an angel would do that. So I think this was prophetic allegory that's being that's being talked about for a time and a commission that Joshua was about to go on by the pre-existent Jesus, the Jehovah of the Elohim, uh, the you know the Word who became flesh, uh, appeared before Joshua as he was about to to the battles of the conquest of the of the covenant land and that is sort of prophetic allegory there's a dual allegory perhaps in terms of being very reflective of what Jesus is going to do with the descendants of those giants whether they're actual giants descendants of the giants or recreated ones but with those that are around that are bringing about the end time and the fulfillment of, of end time prophecy with Armageddon, and, and that the ark was used to scatter the enemies in Numbers 10, uh, 35. So I think there's a good chance we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant at the time of the Armageddon battle. And that, um, you know, when I, when I was referring to the Joshua account, with the angel with the sword, that was just before the Jericho battle. So after they battled in the Eastern campaign with uh, Sihon and Og and the, and the Midianite kings, they crossed over the Jordan River. And uh, right after Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're going to take on Jericho. And that's when Jesus appears, because this is the time of the taking of the actual land that they're going to keep. And so I think all of that, suggests that the ark might be there, but I kind of have to come back to it. I don't have scripture for that. So I think it's a really interesting question. I would speculate that it likely does appear then, and I would expect it'll probably be with in Jerusalem during the reign um, uh, in the millennium. But again, we don't have scripture on that either. So just speculation on my part. I appreciate that answer. Really interesting question. I'm moving on to the next one that comes from R.S. Nickelbein. Nickelbein. Question for Gary. Do you think the scientist will recreate the giants in the last days? It has been talked about that Gilgamesh's body has been discovered and the armed forces have it. Yeah, very good question. So let's just start with the Gilgamesh aspect because it'll start to maybe make a little bit of sense for people. So if they have Gilgamesh's body uh, and the, the scientists are advancing or maybe even further advanced than what we have uh, knowledge of, they may be able to, to take that DNA and in sort of Jurassic Park type of uh, extrapolation um, as an analogy to recreate these giants. Or they may be able to take that DNA and alter it into human DNA to create these giants. So they could be like a technologically uh, created giant. And I think we have to be aware that they're always looking for angelic technology. We're talking about the governments and the secret societies and the polytheist organizations. They're always looking for angelic technology, angelic knowledge, and remnants of those ancient um, sites that they could glean some of this technology, and in this case, DNA from. So when you now mix that sort of ideology into 
will will they be able to recreate the giants in the end time with the the idea that Gilgamesh's body might have been uh, discovered or remnants of the body with some DNA? It starts to say, hey, there you could make a, a speculative case so that that might be the case. What's interesting at the end of the uh, Obama administration, there was this purge of emails. They do email dumps and. There could be 500 emails at a time that they dump that's being either declassified or just getting that information out. And in that dump, right at the end of Obama's reign, in the middle, uh, um, towards the end, I guess, there was this reference to the discovery of the sarcophagus or the tomb of Gilgamesh and that it was uh, taken back to, to the United States, as I recall. So that leads to two things. One is there could be DNA in there if that is indeed the case, and that's not just information. Two is, is that some people believe that the sarcophagi, the sarcophagus, in this case singular, would have technology that would have given power and strength to the giants and to help heal them, and then for their descendant lower uh, bloodline descendants who had to intermarry with humans. So I think all of that leads to the possibility that we could see technology recreate giants. And I write about that in the first book, that that is one of the possibilities as to how that we'll see giants show up again. Or there were giants that were still alive and maybe there's a whole body in stasis in that sarcophagus. We, I mean, we don't have any other details. Just as a lot of people think that in South Africa or South Antarctica in the south, there were discoveries of giants and stasis and other people say all over the earth, that is in the earth, all over the earth. So there are ways where that connection to what was released about Gilgamesh leads to the possibility that we're going to see real giants in the end time. But we can also see fallen angels when they know their time is short is, is to copulate again with human females and create giants on their own. And we also have the bloodline descendants, at least who claim to be bloodline descendants. So lots of ways that we're going to see all of this happen. And it may be all of the above. That would be the sort of really scary thing is this all of the above. So but we don't get that word giant in the New Testament in, in the end time. But we can take. uh, uh Words like Megasthenes for great, for example, and Megas back to similar meanings to giants and Raphaim and bloodlines for the great princes and the great great kings and the great merchants, which are all the bloodline sort of elite as they're described in the book of Revelation. So, And I do talk about that last part in, 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 in my new book in Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. That's very fascinating information. Thank you for sharing that one. Our next question comes from Tammy George. How many wives did Abraham have? Well, all we're told of in the Bible are, you know, three women that Abraham was associated with. So whether or not you think that both all three would be are legitimate or two of them are wives and one of them is just a consort i'll leave that for other people but sarah was his first wife 
Um, Hagar was provided to him by Pharaoh in Egypt. And Hagar is the uh, mother of uh, Ishmael. And Keturah uh, was also a handmaiden that was part, one of his consorts and produced a number of sons. And one of them was uh, Midian, which is the patriarch for the Midianites. So there are some things out there that Abraham had more wives, um, not biblical, but um, because we don't have anything to substantiate uh, that on, I'll say that uh, Abraham had one wife for sure, and, and I'll let other people classify how Hagar is classified. So there's some researchers out there think that Hagar and Keturah are the same, but they don't seem to be the same. Um, so I would I would lean against that. So three is is how many companions Abraham had. Excellent. Thank you very much for that answer. Our next question comes from Jason Cowan. Our next question is, can you please talk about occult symbols that are commonplace in society, such as on clothing, etc.? It's getting to be more common, and it's to the point where people don't really associate it as being something perhaps you want to avoid uh and it's becoming perhaps the fashion where that's what you want to do or what a lot of young people will want to do so it's in all sorts of jewelry it's in all sorts of swimwear it's in all sorts of t-shirts it is just becoming like we're swimming in occult uh, iconology and you know, you have things on there that are, you know, like the Leviathan cross. I'll just name a few things. You get pyramids, you get the unicorn, you get the horn, the single horn, you get the third eye, you get pentagrams, you get all sorts of things that are uh, alchemy symbols. You get uh, the green man on some of the fashion. You see crystals. Uh, you see scales, as in not the scales of Revelation necessarily, but the scales of Egypt where the souls are being, being weighed. Uh, and you see all sorts of Kabbalistic symbols in there. And I won't go through all of the mystical Judaic symbols that are out there. And it's getting people prepared to accept what things are going to happen in the future that the more easily believe the lies that were that they're going to be told. And there's some risk that's involved in wearing this stuff. Um, you know, when people wear uh, masks and things, um, you know, the mask in the theater industry um, before the modern times, they would use a mask that would represent uh, the individual that they're representing or that there is another uh, spirit that's in you so they were trying to when they become that character they were trying to, to um be like a media median that is you know directly in contact with that spirit to become exactly like the character and to speak to the people directly through through the language of the play and so when you're wearing this stuff it's like wearing magic it's like wearing the occult it's like wearing that invitation 
to invite a demon spirit in. So one needs to be careful of this. Um, and uh, particularly if you're involved with anything that has anything to do with any sort of rituals, because usually people that are going to be convinced to wear these things uh, are going to be invited to events that are going to have music and things going on, which are rituals that again sort of secures that seal of loyalty, uh, even though one may not think that that's what they're doing. And so this is sort of like a precursor to maybe the mark and some other symbols of loyalty that is coming down the road. So this is stuff Christians ought not to be participating in. If you're in the polytheist world um, or secular and you don't know anything about it, um, for seculars, learn about it and then decide for polytheists. I understand that that's, that's your, your belief system, but I would sort of dig a little bit deeper and make sure that that's what you want to believe and that's what you want to do and that's what you intended to do when you wear this. And we're going to see more of this, that all of this occult iconology, whether it's in entertainment, whether or not it's in the names that companies use, whether or not it's in art, whether or not it is in literature with allegories, whether or not it's on buildings with taciturn symbols, it's going to become more prominent that we are just going to be overwhelmed with this and we're going to have to put on our own armor of God to protect ourselves because it is going to be so far out in the open it's going to make what you're seeing today pale by comparison. This is nothing to what you're going to see in terms of the occult iconology and the occult doctrines and then the totalitarian implementation of that. So one can expect to uh, look at these things that are being worn that down the road, if you're not wearing clothing that is being assigned to you or recommended with these this imagery, you're going to be anti-New World Order and anti-Universal anti Religion, and this is even before Antichrist comes. So we need to understand the times that we're in as the fig tree generation, at least I think we're in the fig tree generation, and we should be expecting to see this rise in the same manner as the sorrows, and it's going to get stronger and stronger and stronger so that this special generation uh, will be deceived and will accept the lies and, and, and the illusions and the delusions that they're being provided. So this is the tip of the, of the iceberg, so to speak, uh, and uh, it's going to become stronger and it's going to become more vicious in, in terms of accepting it and then them wanting you to display those occult things. So just something for people to start preparing themselves for. Very fascinating. Thank you very much for that answer. Moving on to our next question that comes from SW. And this was resounded by other people in the chat, I remember last month as well. Why did Lot offer his daughters? Yeah, that's a yeah, excellent question. Why would Lot uh, offer his daughters? Um, so, so what we do know is, is there's context to the story. So let's start a little bit about the context. So the two angels that go to Sodom, that um, Lot is going to offer up his daughters in substitution for the angels that they're asking for, 
Uh, originally, were with Abraham as uh, with uh, the angel of the Lord. Uh, Jehovah was with uh, those two angels as they spoke to Abraham. And it was being announced to Abraham that the crimes of Sodom were so great that it was going to be destroyed. And Abraham is pleading and negotiating. And as he goes through the negotiations, he whittles it down. And uh, so... What Abraham is trying to do is make sure that none of the innocent people are going to be destroyed. And so uh, he wants to make sure that Sodom is not going to be destroyed and that there are good people there as well. So that's sort of the context and the angels show up. And so they're taken in by Lot, who recognizes them as angels and takes them in and is conversing, eating with them, and, you know, understanding and learning what those angels are there to do. And they're there to judge Sodom. And so there's some time that passes before, but before they go to sleep, the inhabitants come along and they want to have Lot send out the angels so that they can know them. So there's two things that you could associate with that is is that these were males that were um, doing the talking and that they wanted to either have sex with angels um, physically um, and within the same sex or they thought that perhaps um, they would have sex with their daughters but i don't think they were offering up their daughters i think they wanted to do that themselves and or they thought that the angels uh, having knowledge of what angels can do and that they can choose a gender that may um, change their gender and that they can produce more Raphaim because the Raphaim are fertile and the kings that are uh, reigning over the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Pentapolis, uh, five cities of the plain, um, they are in an infertility issue and they want more um, of the demigods to, to uh, you know, continue to populate and and uh, control the, that metabolist estate. So it could be that what they're doing is that what Lot is doing is is trying to spare the rest of the city, and the daughters are um, sort of that offering to do so, which is just I just can't be imagine being in that position, but that seemingly is part of what is going on there and so that the rest of the city wouldn't be destroyed so it's like giving your life in this case he's giving the daughters his daughter's life uh for the whole the rest of the people of the whole city that that would satisfy them and that they wouldn't be proven totally evil uh, the other thing is is that they were taken in under lots protection and so as a guest and so it's his responsibility as the one who receives the guest to ensure that guests do not have any harm to him so within that sort of understanding he needs to do everything he can to protect those angels not that i think angels really need to be protecting so that's part of what's going on 
But you just can't get over the understanding that angels angels have the power to destroy the city. They have the powers to do great destruction um, when they have the authority from God. And so he was doing the right thing from that perspective. But I think I go back towards the first thing. The first option is, is that he's trying to save as many people and at least all the good people in 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 the city um, by having them take that offering but of course the sodomites are corrupt and evil to the core and they, they don't accept that offer and so they want to continue with uh to have sex with the angels so i think that's why he offered the daughters up was was for uh to save as many lives and in the same spirit as what abraham uh, was trying to negotiate for to save innocent people in the city of Sodom. But that's just my speculation. We're not told exactly why, uh, but I think the circumstances would point to those two reasons and uh, the, the saving is, of more lives would be, I think, the primary um, motivation by Lot. I really great. Question and thank you for clearing that one up. Our next question comes from Mama Bear. A lady addressed the Glastonbury City Council about fifteen about fifteen minute cities, and she told the councilman that whatever happens in Glastonbury affects the entire world, and everyone in the council knows it. Can you ask Gary what she may have meant? I know Glastonbury has ancient Celtic druid fairy grail king author history. Why would the lady say that whatever happens in Glastonbury affects the entire world? Interesting question for sure by Mama Bear. Uh, I'm not sure who, who said those remarks. I was trying to find out. Um, I couldn't really clearly uh find that 15-minute speech or 15-minute address to the council. Um, but I think it doesn't matter whether or not it would be, you know, the um, one of the, uh, the main promoters of the, of, of the festival or not as being that individual or it was a guest speaker that came in. I think it's the it is talking about, and again, I, I don't have a copy of the speech, so I want to, under, I want to underline that. Um, I think it talks to the core belief of the Glastonbury Festival. So we need to know a little bit about what that festival is about and why it's located there. So Glastonbury is the burial place of King Arthur on a, on a hill uh, that they call Tor. T-O-R. And King Arthur is an Antichrist type figure um, and a Tawatha Dodanan, son of Uther Pendragon, chief dragon, and married to a fairy queen named Guinevere that goes back to shades and uh, banshees and those types of spirits. She's a typical fairy queen of the Tuatha Dodanan as well. And so these are bloodline royales, but it's King Arthur who has this burial place there. So it's a very holy burial place. It's almost like they're looking for King, a King Arthur or Antichrist figure 
to uh, resurrect there. Now, there'll be m many antichrists. We might see a few <laughs> false resurrections in the end time. We, we have to be prepared for all types of these things. But this hill was surrounded in, in the time of King Arthur and before by a large lake. And so it was uh, <clears throat> a place that uh, was akin to this island of glass, as they called it. And that was sort of an allegory for Avalon or an allegory for Atlantis or a city like Atlantis, a place like Asgard, as it would be in fairy mythology, Norse mythology uh, of the Tuatha Dé Danann of the Eastern variety. And Glastonbury is also the Gnostic place where where Gnostics believe that Christianity first took hold in England, but not Christianity as we understand it, as Celtic Christianity, as I, as I write about a lot in, in my first book. And in this line of thought, this is where Joseph of Arimathea, as their belief system goes, um, took a son of Jesus and Mary Magdalene to England as the Grail. And the Grail is an allegory for the royal bloodline, the Graal, or the Graal, or the Real. It has three different variations to the double entendres that go with each of them. But the Holy Grail is the Holy Bloodline. This is the Holy Bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene passed on through Josephus, who intermarries into the Camelot dynasties. Camelot is like that word uh, for Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, because Camelot is a shining city on a hill, just as Sodom was, just as Gomorrah was. These were cities of light, these are cities of the occult. And so all of that is sort of woven into the mythos of, of King Arthur as this antichrist, sun god type individual and Guinevere being um, uh, Mother Earth, uh, Queen of Heaven, the fertility goddesses, divine representatives of those gods on this earth, similar to what Antichrist will uh, deploy in the end time. We'll see whether or not he has a queen or not, but I think he'll have the dualism as from, from the polytheist religion and with the queen of heaven as, as one of the gods that are being worshipped and likely the, uh, the woman in Revelation 17. So all of this is sort of woven into what's going on in Glastonbury, and it's a Gnostic festival, a polytheist festival. It's like global Gnosticism. So this festival is targeting the youth of the world, and it targets, you know, from, let's say, 20 to about 40 years old. You'll, if you do some research, it might say 24 to 35, but they're really trying to catch that whole generation, that fig tree generation, that they're preparing them for the end time from a Gnostic perspective, because they want to bring on the end time. And so the agenda is to influence that young generation. And that the things that are talked about and the th things that are learned are to be spread out through the whole world. That's why you have speakers and people coming there from all over the world. At a time and a festival that's important to them, that is a meeting place of the dead, of the Rafa, 
of the spirits of the Raphaim kings as they come through these portals. And just as that place of Avalon, uh, the place of the hill is thought to have portals into the other world. And so they're targeting all the culture of the world. So they, they bring in the poets, they bring in the writers, they bring in the actors, they bring in the musicians, they bring in everybody that's in this worldwide culture of the arts to influence the people. And we all know how we were influenced, at least when I was young, we were influenced by music and all of these radical things. And they are there to influence them to prepare for the new age that is coming. So when they talk about that agenda and that what happens in Glastonbury affects the entire world, they're sending out their prophets or their carriers of the messages to the entire world. So I think that's probably what's being driven at, but because I don't have a copy of the speech, I wasn't able to find it, and I don't know exactly who was speaking. Um, I, so I don't want to name any names or anything like that. That's what I would think that they're saying when whatever happens in Glastonbury affects the entire world and everyone in the council knows it. And so it's a typical Gnostic structure to have elder councils uh, that are running these things and sponsoring it. And that's where that leads back to the secret societies and the bloodlines and all the money that goes to fund these types of festivals. That's very fascinating. We are moving through the questions very quickly tonight. So we should have plenty of time to get to the live questions. If you do have a question for Brother Gary, please do write it there in the chat. I will add it to the list. It is a first come first serve list. So the sooner you ask your question, the earlier it will get answered. And if we do not get to the question that you asked tonight, we will roll it over to be part of the pre-made list for next month's Ask Me Anything. All right, so we're on the eighth question now out of 12 pre-made questions before we get into the live questions and we have about 10 minutes until break all right this one comes from roy r can you elaborate on just where we might be in the end times and how old does the bible say the earth is very very good question so where i think we are in the prophetic time frame is is before the start of the last seven years, that last week of years that's talked about in Daniel 9.27. Uh, that's the time of the end, or the Hebrew word ketz, which means the end time. That's, talk, that's stated twice in Daniel 9.26. A week that's separated after the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem with no time frame said when that last week would start. But it unfolds as one whole week as it's laid out in Daniel 9.27 and as the book of Daniel talks about throughout in terms of the related prophecies. So in Daniel 11, you're going to see the rise of Antichrist, get his first three and a half year events, you get the midpoint, and then you get the events of the last three and a half years. So Jesus lays down the same time frame because Daniel is only providing the word that Jesus, before he became Jesus as the word provided uh, either directly or through his angels or through the Holy Spirit to the prophets. So <clears throat> I think that we are in the fig tree generation that Jesus talks about Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And 
in the book of Luke, you, and I think that we are in the period of the sorrows. And I think we're in the fig tree generation you know, we, for a lot of signs in terms of the technology and the geopolitical things and everything that we're seeing. But one of the signs that you would have to have in place is not only Judah as the southern kingdom in the land of the covenant in the end time, just as they're prophesied, but also in control of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of the epicenter for the events of the end time. So they have to have control of Jerusalem too. So for me, if there would be a place that we might look to for the start of the last generation, it would be the taking of Jerusalem in 1967. So understanding a generation can be 40 years, it can be 70 years, or it could be 120 years as Genesis 6-3 describes. That's a long period of time if it's on the latter too, 70 or 120. And, and there's still a lot of things yet to be fulfilled. And we want to be careful that we don't get ahead of end time chronology. So I think that we're in the, in the sorrows, um, in the birth pangs. And we're just starting to see those birth pangs get stronger. And I think we're going to see that they're all going to be contrived birth pangs by the rulers of this world because they want to bring on the end time. And and those sorrows are earthquakes, which are getting stronger all the time. So they're probably doing something in the Earth's core to cause that. They uh, It also includes pestilence and famine and wars and rumors of wars. And those are the same catastrophes in Revelation 6 at 25% destruction, then with the trumpets at 23% or 33% and the wrath bulls at 100% if it was permitted to um, continue, but Jesus will step in to prevent that from happening, but it will still be horrific with the, with, with the wrath bulls. So we're in those sorrows. Um, and lots of things to happen yet before we could get close to saying that we're in the opening of the seals yet. The opening of the seals happens around the time of Daniel 9.27. And so what I like to do is I like to put all prophecies around what Jesus said, not what, uh, not, but all things that Jesus said around what the prophet said. I, I like to get that in the right order because he's the one who supplies the information just as the book of Revelation is the testimony of Jesus. So it just makes sense to put revelation around what Jesus said as well. And everything sort of starts to fall in place when you do that. So that's where I think we are. We haven't seen the sacrifice on the wing of the temple yet. We haven't seen Antichrist crowned yet. We haven't seen Babylon come. We haven't seen any of the tribulations of the saints yet. So we have a long ways to go. And I think Things are starting to speed up, but we're still in the sorrow section. So it could be things could happen quickly, but likely we're going to, it's going to be uh, quite a few more years before we can say we're, we're, we're approaching the last seven years, I think, just, just at the pace that things are going at right now. In terms of how old the Bible is, I mean, how old the earth is that the Bible says, we don't get a specific age for the earth in the Bible. What we get is days uh, one through seven, and we get some time after the Eden account. Uh, it doesn't say day eight for the Eden account. And so we have a scenario where 
all we can do is date the lineages of the patriarchs to common dates that we can link into into history that would take us back to Adam that would be sort of approaching that 6,000 years. And a lot of people think that the epoch of Adam would last 6,000 years, and then you'd have a 1,000-year millennium, which would make a perfect sort of week, um, and, and, and a week of years as well as for years of, as a 1,000 years in the day of, uh, of God, just as if that's the case, it might have been used for the days of creation. I'm not going to say in what doctrine on that it has to be exactly those numbers in terms of the, the years for the epoch of Adam, and then the only one we get a specific time frame for is the last thousand years, which comes in Revelation 20 with the millennium. Um, but likely is the case, but we just don't have scripture that explicitly says that. But if a day is a thousand years, then that means sometime after day six, after the creation of the people of day six, Adam is created. And I say that because I can't reconcile Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They have way too many details, and I don't think the Bible that are different. And I, and I don't believe the Bible is in contradiction. And so if there's no day eight, there'd be a gap in there as well. So it's older. The earth seemingly is older than standard uh, Christian doctrine and churches would suggest. I would also suggest that uh, one might want to look at even an older date than an expanded, you know, seven or 8,000 years up to sort of uh, in terms of the thousand years is a day aspect between day six and whenever Adam is created. And the reason why I say that is there's different views on how many years would have been between uh, day seven and the time of Adam. So, but there's, uh, well, you could look at translating, um, Genesis 1 a little bit differently than standard dogma has it. And it starts to begin with Genesis 1-2, where it says the earth was without form and void. So that word was is the Hebrew word haya. And it's also the same word that's used in relationship with Yahweh or Yehovah. Uh, and it means that it exists. Um, and words kind of similar to that, but it also can mean um, was, and it can also be translated as became. So if you look at the earth was or the earth haya, you can translate that that the earth was void and formless, or the earth became without form and without and and was void. So when you look at that word form, that's the Hebrew word tuhu. And it means formless, confusion, unreal. It means an empty space, um, a wasteland and a wilderness and a place of chaos, um, which is why you had to have the waters separated because the waters that had collapsed on each other, if, if it was created before, was the first destruction of the earth, probably in the angelic war. And then you move on to the second word in conjunction, and it says... I hate to, uh, to in, stop you there, Brother Gary, but we are going into break that is uh, pre-made by the radio station. So we will be right back after this short break, 
And we'll pick it up on the other side. Thank you, everybody, for joining again. And we'll see you on the other side. When Justin and I... As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation where wisdom has increased as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com. Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. To become even more involved, please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. When Justin and I found out we were having a little girl, we named her Eliana and started dreaming of what life would be like with her, where we would take her, what we would teach her, and of course, what we would read to her. One day we walked around a bookstore looking for books we might want for her and found nothing. So we started brainstorming what exactly we would want. 
Even from a young age, we wanted her to know and understand the heart of God and hidden truths that are in ancient biblical manuscripts like the Book of Enoch and the idea of the Prophecy for Children series was born. Justin got hard to work and Praise Yah released the Prophecy for Children series. We are grateful for the support and amazing feedback from others who have been wanting the same for their children. We just found out we will be having a son, and we are excited to grow our family and to keep writing books for our children to share with our truth-seeking family. To order these books today, please check out the children's store at sacredwordpublishing.com. Not giving up. Revolution Radio. All right. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Hey, welcome back, hey, everybody. Well- it's great to be with you all again. I'm the host for tonight, Justin James Garcia, and we are continuing our Ask Me Anything with author and researcher Gary Wayne, the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 1 and Part 2, and also the author of an upcoming book. We're really excited for all of the books that Brother Gary puts out because they're all full of extremely not well-known information and things that are uh, super, super interesting if you have any inkling of the past or the history that has been covered up by the mainstream churchianity, mainstream uh, indoctrination centers. The information that Brother Gary goes into is uh, quite esoteric and quite uh, revealing, I would say. But we were in the middle of a question from Roy R., who said, can you elaborate on just where we might be in the end times and how old does the Bible say the earth is? Brother Gary, if you would like to pick it back up. Thank you so much. Yeah, sorry, I didn't get that answer completed before the break. So but the second word is the word void, and it's similar to, uh, you know, without form as, as to who. This word is Hebrew guhu or bohu, and it means similar to tuhu, but it means um, ruined. Uh, it means to be, you know, void and made a waste. And both of these words are inflecting the understanding that something called destruction because the heaven and earth was created in Genesis 1 and then if the translation was that the earth um, is not to be translated was without form and was void then it if it's to be translated through Haya as the world became that way in terms of a waste a ruin a destruction that something would have caused that destruction destruction because God only speaks in 
things happen. So you can create anything instantaneously, but the Genesis 1 is like a renewal of the earth that Psalms 104 talks about, that when God sends his Holy Spirit, the word, the world is renewed, or the earth is renewed. And that's why you see in Genesis 1-2 the, the spirit hovering over the waters. It's the word that creates all things, but this becomes a like a renewal process. And so you have this separation from the waters uh, happening that is going to permit life on the earth and the earth to be uh, not covered by, by the water. So you have the separation and the separation out of chaos. And so it seems like something would have happened to cause those waters to um, be destroyed, just as the book of Peter talks about the earth that was in water and was out of the water, and that the world is reserved not for a, a flood apocalypse, a uh, apocalypse by fire. It's talking about that mystery of prehistory. So if that's the case, and I'm, I'm not doctrinal on this, but it seems to fit that the angelic rebellion might better fit between Genesis 1 and 1 and Genesis 1 2. And that there's many other passages in the Bible that support this, and I can send you the documents if you want to get a hold of me on this. That the world is an unknown age, and so it could be 14 to 17 billion years old, just as some of the secular scientists, so-called secular scientists say. It might even be older. We just don't know. So I would encourage Christians not to get too doctrinal on the age of the earth. The only thing we can say for sure is, is that the genealogy from Adam to today is in the zone of 6,000 years. That doesn't necessarily get transposed that the world is only 6,000 years old. Uh, it may be, but we, we're not told that. And so it's just how people are looking at the translation uh, of the passages that would infer it's either 6,000 years old or uh, older. So, but I would encourage people to, to really look at Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 and look at the details. And the details are out of a, are in a different order and um, are, are not in perfect cohesion as the Bible is. So Genesis 2 with the Adamite creation is suggesting sometime after day 7, uh, Adamites were created for a special commission, and I think that commission was for the resolution to the angelic rebellion, and likely with that angelic rebellion, they led all the people of day six away and away from God and into polytheism, and that's why you have Adam created in singular and then Eve created a little bit later, and a commission that was set out for them, even though God knew they were going to fall because they're Alpha Omega. So they knew everything right from the beginning, but that's the beginning to the Messiah plan, uh, Jehovah becoming flesh. So kind of a long answer uh, to that last one, but, and and there could be, you could do three hour presentation on, on Genesis 1, uh, as I did at uh, the, the True Legends conference. So um, there's a lot more information there and uh, people should, I think, be careful on the age, but check it out for themselves. Yeah, really fascinating topic and one that I know you've 
covered extensively in the past. So thank you so much for covering it again here. And uh, no worries that we didn't get through it. You know, before the break, I know that you have done plenty of shows that have covered the span of hours talking about that subject. So thank you for the summary there. Let's go into the next question that comes from non-typical. How did the crucified plead to God for vengeance against the inhabitants of the earth that caused their death if they are asleep? Yeah, a good question. I think who non-typical or the first that non-typical was referring to is Revelation 6, 6, 11. And the reason why I say that is that's the only verse that I think comes sort of close to what is being described. And that's uh, the passage uh, of, did I say Revelations um, 6 or did I say Revelation 11? If I said Revelation 11, I apologize. I'm talking about Revelation 6, uh, where you see uh, the the white robes uh, of uh, saints in heaven. And that's the only passage I know of that could relate to that. So if I get the passage wrong, my, my apologies. Um, but she's referring to, or the person is referring to, uh, and white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants and their brethren should be killed as they were and should be fulfilled. And just uh, before that, uh, in Revelation 6.10, it's talking about um, how long before God is going to avenge uh, our blood. And this was said by all of the saints in a loud voice in heaven. Uh, how long before uh, God is going to judge and avenge their blood on them that was that dwell on the earth. So the people on the earth have killed them. So what's being talked about is these are martyrs in heaven. And that if we all sleep, how is that possible? So we do all sleep. And so did these. These originally, these are what I would call the first fruits, and they're told to wait a little bit longer for more first fruits to be killed for they for as they were. And that's saints that are shown in Revelation seven that come out of the great tribulation that happens before the, the great tribulation of the saints that happens before the great tribulation of the world. So the affliction, which is the same word as tribulation, as philipses, happens in Jesus's or before the abomination and we're also told in revelation 2 10 that there could be full 10 days of tribulation so three years even before the start so depending on exactly when the revelation six seals are open that may uh, include those killed before uh, the start of the last seven years that are in revelation six or maybe it's part of them and yet there's going to be more killed and then in the first three and a half years more that show up in revelation seven they're part of i think it's more like revelation six is right at the start of the of the last seven years and because revelation seven starts just before uh we get the tribulation of the saints and right after this the commission of the 144,000 who are going to preach the gospel throughout the world as jesus talks about before the abomination in matthew 24 for. And the two witnesses whose commission in Revelation 11 is three and a half years. And then the 144,000 are shown in Revelation 14 
verses 1 through about 7, just before you get the preaching of the gospel and the last of the gospel, after those martyrs are in heaven and by the term first fruits that they're called, one presumes they are martyred saints, uh, just like the ones in Revelation 6 and the ones in Revelation 7. And then you get the summary of the last three and a half years in Revelation 14 after the angel preaches beginning with the destruction of Babylon. And so if we go to now what we're told about the resurrection sequence in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, we're told it's Christ, the first fruits, and then those who are Christ. And as we learn further on that sequence with the rapture, that those who are asleep and those who are still alive, but not martyrs. And so that's the resurrection sequence for the, about the first three and a half years. And so these are the first fruits in Revelation 6.11, if that's the ones non-typical is referencing, that were slain for the testimony of Jesus from the time of Jesus to just before the opening of the seals. And so that's why they're, they have been resurrected. So sometime after Jesus' resurrection, sometime before uh, the start of the last seven years, probably just before the start of the last seven years, those martyrs in Revelation 6 will be resurrected as part of the resurrection sequence. And there's more resurrections to follow. So you're going to have the resurrection of Israel and Judah in Ezekiel 37. You're also going to have a resurrection of saints for those who weren't raptured who and who also do not take the mark that are going to be raptured um, for the time of the millennium, because in Revelation 20, they're going to rule with Jesus. And then you're going to have a resurrection of the dead at the end of the millennium. So uh, that's, and they're going to be judged at that point in time to, to the lake of fire for the second death, or one presumes if, uh, according to the book of Romans, that uh, God deems that they should live in eternity, they'll be resurrected to eternity as well. And akin to Daniel 12, at the time of the resurrection and the judgment and the exodus of Israel and Judah, that they'll have that resurrection that's recorded in Ezekiel 37 with the dry bones. It's also recorded in Daniel 12.1, specifically for Israel and Judah. And some of them will also go to everlasting um, judgment in the second death in the lake of fire and some to uh, everlasting life, depending on uh, um, whether they chose to follow God or not and believe in God. So um, so if if that's who non-typical is talking about, I think those are part of the first fruits and they did go to sleep when they were died and they're all resurrected at one time and have to wait a little bit longer for the tribulation saints to be resurrected like they were. And then after, I, I should, I guess I should finish it off, uh, you know, and after you get the resurrection and the rapture uh, um, of the dead and, the, and those who are still alive, that's when the promise to avenge the saints happens in the great tribulation that will lead to the wrath bulls. And in Romans 12, 19, it talks about vengeance is God's and he'll do so in his own wrath and that we're instructed not to take out our own vengeance. So I think, again, the Bible just sort of works in perfection, um, but sometimes it's a little bit hard to put all, of, all the ingredients together. But when you do, it just sort of, you know, 
presents a, a complete picture and understanding. So hopefully I've answered the question. Yeah, really great question. And thank you for that thorough answer. Our next question is pretty long, but I will read it all. This comes from Elohim Adonai. Does scripture give any ideas on what we are going to be doing forever and ever in New Jerusalem slash heaven? What is life going to be like realistically compared to life in earth? Are we just going to be singing all day and praying all day? Meaning, what type of activities are we going to be engaging in all day to escape boredom and meaninglessness? Are we going to have families? I know scripture says there's no marriage in heaven, but it doesn't say there will be no marriage and family starting in the New Jerusalem. If not, what will we be existing and living forever and ever for? Or is it some big mystery? And lastly, if we don't like that mystery after it's revealed, then what? Do we get in trouble with the Father for wanting more and better, respectfully? Yeah, there's a lot of questions there. So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I probably can't hit on all of them. But uh, I, I would say this, that it is a bit of a mystery uh, because we're not told in detail what we will be doing. Um, but I would imagine there's going to be roles for everybody, just as all angels have a rank and a position and responsibilities. And so whatever those responsibilities are, that's what we're going to be doing. So we're going to be like angels. So I think we can deduce from that. And what the angels are doing, they are sort of the messengers of God and doers of God's will. And also they're, they've been here to aid us in our um, time to uh, go through our choices so that we can be resurrected or not into eternity uh, and that we're the inheritors of eternity. So whatever angels were doing, we might be doing a little bit more um, and that we will be like angels. So there's no requirement for sex because we're, we're going to be immortal. So we're going to be doing whatever God wants us to do and whatever he signs us to do. And one expects that that would be fulfilling and interesting and fulfilling ongoing because eternity is a very, very long time. If it was like angels to aid humans as the inheritors of eternity and the goal was to create more life, one might suggests that we might be involved with expanding life for God in whatever ways that he wants, knowing that it's the you know, tripart nature of the word, the spirit, and God who create life. But we may have roles in that in an expanded dimensions or expanded universes or just a larger universe. We don't know, but one would expect that God God is about creating more life and who are loyal. And what will help us is, is that God will write his laws on our hearts. Because as we've learned as humans is that we have difficult fulfilling the law. So 
God doesn't want to raise us into eternity just so he can send us to the fire when we fail for um, not doing what we're supposed to be doing or getting bored or things like that. So he's going to not only create a new body for us that will be akin to Jesus's resurrected body, but he will also write his laws on our hearts so that we will understand, I think, the pros and the cons, and that we will be continually and wanting to choose God ongoing for eternity and be fulfilled in everything that we're doing, because it's going to be so, I guess, wonderful and great. I, what I can't do is describe what that would be, but I, I, I would indicate it's a larger and larger um, universe and dimensions, perhaps. So, uh, because God can create as much as he likes and as big as he wants and continue to do so because he's, he's not only alpha omega, but he is the omnipotent God. So there's anything he can do anything. So do I think that uh, there's a likelihood that uh, we would be getting into trouble with God in the future? I think that is being dealt with as we get through this original process and again connected to writing his laws on our hearts and creating the the new body and being adopted as sons of god even though we have human fathers so um i would say that we're probably not going to have the same uh, temptations as the angels did because maybe they didn't have those laws written on their hearts and what what does that mean i think it has to be right within every sort of part of our being um and what what exactly that is i, I cannot say but my speculation is, is is that it's going to be wonderful we just don't know exactly what that wonderful is but my concern is uh, not that um, I'm going to be bored in the afterlife. I just want to make sure I get there first. So for me, it's one step at a time. Yeah, really interesting thoughts to ponder. Thank you for the answer. The next question comes from Truth Seeker in his service. As shown in the books of Malachi 1 and in Romans 9.13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. My question is, was Esau of the serpent seed, and why did the Lord say that he hated Esau? Yeah, very good questions again. So, and uh, good that the uh, the verses are, are cited as well. So, I'm going to say right off the top that Esau is not the serpent seed. Um, he, he has descriptions that would be akin to the serpent seed so he's got you know ruddy uh, described as ruddy and that sort of reddish hair and pinkish whitey skin uh, but other people in the israelite line have that as well just as, as david was described in a similar sort of way or another description would be fair and he is more of a hunter than an agrarian so he's more of a nimrod he's more of day six people he's more like the nephilim and the rephaim versus the adamites and the noahites who are agrarians and all that language that's being talked about in genesis 2 that we talked about previous is talking about running this large agrarian farm they weren't hunters and gatherers and 
in terms of an agrarian society, you would tend to be a shepherd and you would look after your flocks and you would help the people. You would do good for them. You, you're not a taker. A hunter doesn't do that. A hunter just goes into the wild and he hunts and he kills for his own pleasure and for his own needs as well, but he takes. He's not giving back to the community. So it's there's an allegory in there in terms of the differences between Jacob and Esau. And so one is acting in the way of the Edomites, which is Jacob, and one is acting in the way of the Canaanites and the people of day six and the Nephilim and the Raphaim and those who don't follow God as and in the early times more of the hunters and gatherers. And so Esau is more akin to Nimrod, who seems to be more akin in terms of the things that he does to the spurious offspring after the flood, the Raphaim. And so it's not that God hates necessarily Esau. He hates what Esau has become. He hates what Esau does. And Esau is easily stripped of his birthright and his blessing and of the Magianic promise uh, that Jacob usurps uh, because he is acting in a way that sets himself up and makes himself vulnerable to that. And so he again, he's acting more of the way of the of the world. And the Abraham bloodline in Israel is created to be a nation of priests, a nation of shepherds, not as in the shepherd kings of polytheism or fisher kings, but in the way of uh, the Bible with the judges and um, the way that God had originally envisioned Israel before they demanded to have a king. And so this is the differences that uh, I think God is looking at when he says, I hate Esau. And then the other things that he did later, because it's the Edomites, it's the descendants of Esau who are going to trench generally transgenerationally have an oath against Israel to wipe them from the face of the earth. And that comes not only with what the Raphaim are doing, that the Edomites are going to be in partnership with the Horim in particular in Edom, Raphaim giants, but also through Esau's son Eliphaz, who marries, just as Esau marries into Canaanite and Raphaim bloodline, so does Eliphaz with Tina, the daughter of Seir, of the Dukes of Edom, and Seir goes back to the Hebrew word satir, and he's described as a, as a horim, as a giant, as they're described in Deuteronomy 2, horim are giants, and giants are Raphaim, as you take that back to Hebrew. And so they create the Amalekites, who are the nation that are going to attack Israel after they come out of the land of the covenant and to try and wipe them from the face of the earth. And so that's why the vow that the Amalekites take to wipe Israel from the face of the earth is now the judgment against the Amalekites that King Saul is commanded to uh, take care of but doesn't fully commit and then loses his monarchy to David who is going to finish off the Amalekites.
And the Edomites in the time of the diaspora of Assyria, in the time of Babylon, in the time of the Rome, in the time of Herod, are going to do horrible things to the people of Israel. And so the Edomites, as with some of the other people that have done crimes transgenerationally against Israel, will be held accountable in the end time for three counts and maybe four is how it's described of what the things that Edom has done to Israel throughout the generations. So I lean on more that even though Esau was the firstborn, he was, he lost all of his inheritance, blessings, and Magianic promise because of what he did. And he is hated over the generations because of what he and his descendants did and he will be punished for what they did um and so that's why that's what i think god hates god doesn't hate anybody he hates the evil and it's the people who do the evil or the fallen angels that do the evil or the spirits ones that's what he hates and people choose to do that and that's what he hates so um i don't think i, I think that's how we ought to read that um and that Esau was described as the brother of Jacob in Genesis 25, 20 to 27 and elsewhere, and was in the womb at the same time as Jacob. Um, and brother, as that goes back to Hebrew, is uh, the Hebrew word ach, H-C-H, H-2-51. And it means that there are no alternative meanings that would suggest that he was... Um, that he was uh, uh, of the serpent seed or of a Raphaim seed. So I would say that a lot of people think he is, and I see the connections, and he certainly acts like one, like Nimrod does. But we have his genealogy as we have Nimrod's genealogy, and that's why they're not called Raphaim or Nephilim. Baby Gibberim, for both, you could call them that. But, uh, and certainly as Nimrod was, was, was described, but not as Raphaim or Nephilim. Excellent. Thank you very much for that answer. And all right, I think this is our last question for the pre-made list for tonight. So exciting times. We're going to be getting into the live stream questions very shortly. Please do, if you have a question for Brother Gary, ask it there in the live stream chat. I will be adding it to the list for the live stream questions tonight. And if we don't get to your questions tonight, we will roll them over for next month's Ask Me Anything all right, this last question comes from Cynthia, and she asks, how do we explain aliens, quote-unquote, to our non-believing friends? Good question, and I think that uh, falls into at least two categories. Uh, so I'll cover the two. I mean, the first thing is, is do they actually believe in aliens, or do they think it's a possibility, and where do they sit on that? Because there's a lot of people that would suggest that there are no aliens and it's just a conspiracy theory. And of course, we've all kind of lived through this and throughout our generation, it's becoming seemingly more common that there are other beings that are out there and more and more people are believing that, but that doesn't mean that they 
believe that the aliens are the same as what we might believe as Christians as they might be. So that would be the second category. They accept aliens or ex accept the possibility, but how do we convince them that um, they are not what we're being told they are from different planets? The first thing I would suggest to them, and I, I don't think there's a perfect answer to this, but I think the first thing that we want them to sort of look at is, is from a scientific perspective or polytheist perspective, but probably better to hit on the, on the uh, secular perspective is that science is now telling us that there are different dimensions. And of course, we know that biblically that there are because we have, you know, different heavens. We have what's inside the firmament. We have what's outside the firmament, both called heaven. And we also have a spiritual realm where God exists. So that's in another dimension. And seemingly, we're told that there's one more dimension that occupies the same space as the earth, where the abyss prison is, is located, the pit prison. Uh, where the fallen angels are are imprisoned and the worst of the giants, the terrible ones are imprisoned in the sides of the abyss. And it's in a place called Hades described in Greek, in the Greek language or in Sheol as it's described in Hebrew. And it's a larger place. And the gods of old lived in Hades and Sheol. And so it's in a different dimension and that and that these gods could come through the portals. So I would say that you might want to hit them that there's different dimensions and whatever these beings are, they're coming through portals versus different planets, because that seems to be more likely as to what happened, because do they disappear into space and that they could be trapped I don't think so. I think they just—they think they um, disappear into a portal and into another dimension. And in the alien mythos, as I would phrase it, uh, in the alien narrative, is is uh, they do access and come through different portals. They come through portals through the water, through uh, mountain uh, sort of gateway ports and things like that. And we have a lot of information from history that uh, records domains and domain means a portal and a fairy domain would be a fairy portal that fairies come through and that within the alien mythos if they believe in aliens there's many different kinds of aliens and so from a biblical perspective we can explain to them that you have rebellious angels and they have the ability to take a physical form Form and create any physical form and gender they choose. So they could populate angelic technology and flying machines, whether they're chariots or however you want to describe them, just as the alien mythos talks about the chariots of the gods, that they could take different forms and fly these different machines as they would have done likely in, in the past. And that we know there's a lot of these fallen angels. We know in the book of Daniel and Revelation that it says that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and another 
couple of passages describe them as uncountable. So 10,000 times 10,000 could be an allegorical number, but it would be a minimum 100 million. And if a third of them rebelled, that could be 33 million or 50 million or even larger if that 100 million is an allegorical for a big number, right? Because at that time, that would be considered a big number for any population. So there could be even more of them and they could, you know, the, the ones not in the abyss could be taken all of these different forms and they could be at the hierarchy of the alien mythos and their, in their deception. And that they created through their angelic technology a set of physical beings that are below their hierarchy and explain to them that angels have a hierarchy that the word Saba or host means army, which is rank and order. And so that means different ranks. So within the rebellious angels, they have this rank and then they have the demigods that they would, that they created, which we understand as the Nephilim. And so they'll fit into that hierarchy. And then you have those spirits that are coming through the portals and wandering the earth. And everybody knows about ghosts. Uh, these are those Raphaim spirits, and uh, they are part of this hierarchy and through technology will likely receive some sort of body that they're now talking about a sleeve. And you can make reference to how they're talking about that in entertainment and how it's becoming more of a scientific possibility. They believe that they can transfer consciousness. It's the same concept. So again, we sort of want to link it back to the science end, which they'll probably be a little bit more comfortable with. And then you have these aliens that are small ones, and you can relate that to the elementals and the gray uh, gnomes that are in one of the uh, groups of the elementals. And you can look up elementals. There's four different groups. Three of them are, are little people. And then there's a reptilian one that's called salamanders that tend to live in the cities. And they are reptilians that seem to be part of that alien mythos and that the greys are identical in looking and in what they do to the gray aliens that are most popular and dominant in the alien mythos so if they buy into the aliens you can make these connections to what they already buy into that we can make a connection to biblical and we need to bring in some of the descriptions from polytheism that are describing the same types of events or the same types of beings. And so we know there's going to be little people uh, because we even have in, in the book of Ezekiel the Gamadim that were in the towers of Tyr. And uh, that's rooted in the Hebrew word gamad, which means a cubit. So they were 18 to 21 inches tall. So we know there was little people um, we just don't know whether the Gamadeen were created by uh, fallen angels or how they come about, but they were part of a beast empire and uh, were staged in the tower. So I would be sort of walking them through that dimension aspect and the technology aspect and the technology that was, uh, was uh, there in the past and make those connections and then go into the different kinds of beings and then connect that to what the alien mythos is talking about all of these different kinds of beings and that science says that there has to be all of these beings because it's all working about the same set of events and the same type of history so if you can connect those dots you might get somewhere but 
it's it will take a lot to take a non-believing Christian to believe in, in um, what the aliens actually are, um, and that typically they have they'll want to become a Christian first, and then you can start talking to them about, about the other things. But if you do take the other way, the the, the direct route. Uh, it's it, you may you know you may have to plant a lot of seeds before they start to connect the dots themselves because they're going to hit this point of cognitive dissonance and do they really want to get there because if they're not Christian yet that means they got to cross two major bridges and so that that part's difficult so uh, it's possible to do all at once but you know, it might be easier to get them to come back to um, Christianity and then to consider what the aliens are. It, it's probably easier to get them to believe in giants um, before aliens as as, as uh, being part of the adversarial adversaries that we're dealing with. All right, we have reached the end of the pre-made questions for this evening. Awesome answers, Brother Gary. Thank you so much again for all you do. And thank you, everybody, for joining in. I really pray that all of you are being blessed with the answers and the information that is being revealed here. We have 14 questions on the list of live stream questions so far tonight, and we've got some really good ones. If you would like to have your question answered by Brother Gary, please do write it there in the chat over at youtube.com slash Garcia, and I will add it to the list. If we don't get your questions tonight, we will roll these over to become the pre-made list for next month's Ask Me Anything. All right, the first question we have from the live chat tonight comes from MJM. What two most intriguing questions do you have that you want most to be answered that your research has not yet provided an answer for? Wow, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I've, I've been able to answer a lot of good questions. There was one that, that sort of came up earlier in the question is, uh, you know, what happens in eternity? What will we be doing? Uh, I don't think we're going to get to that. Um, but that would be certainly, you know, uh, one of the questions that I don't think my research has, has fully answered that as a contrarian, uh, I'd like to, you know, I like to have more, uh, evidence, right. But that's partially what faith is, is all about as well. Um, and what would be another one that my research hasn't had that would might, might, um, uh, you know, can't really come up with with a with a second one off the top of my head. That would be one of these major burning things that uh, I haven't uh, had answered. I mean, I, I take a lot of comfort in my research that it it, it um, answers most things that um, I have. That uh, you know, if I have any issues, I can I can go to the Bible. I can find the answers to to what I'm looking for. So. Um, you know, there there is one um, that, uh, and again, I don't think there's any way of getting it, but if Israel had fulfilled the Holy Covenant uh, and it had been carried out through the blessings of the covenant, what would it have been like? Um, 
um, as opposed to having things done through the curses of the covenant. Of course, that's not something that I can answer um, because they chose not to fulfill the covenant. They will be reconciled uh, as part of the holy covenant, but we don't know how things would have played out. All we know is things would have played out significantly different. And, you know, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I mean, they were, they were you know, would have really loved them. Israel or even Adam not to have fallen, but they're the Alpha Omega, so they knew the beginning from the end. And they could probably answer the question to and because they are Alpha Omega, they could see every option being played out in a way that would be different. And so I would love to have had that answer to see what's how history would have changed if uh Israel had fulfilled the covenant and, and accepted their Messiah. Uh, so, but we didn't get a chance to see that filled out because then how would have the Gentiles have been brought in? I'm sure you still have a similar time frame. It's just a different process to have the Gentiles fulfilled, but I don't have the details of how that would be fulfilled. So that one would is kind of one that I've thought about as well. So those would be two, I think. Awesome, thank you for the answer. Next question comes from Quicks Aya or Hia. Which Nephilim are running the world now and in which positions or families that we know? Well, it's a it's a lot larger question than what people normally would think. So we have uh probably more I mean the According to the polytheist bloodlines, there would be Nephilim and Rephaim. My research would probably indicate more that they are Rephaim and not Nephilim, so post-Diluvian giants and bloodlines. But you have a number of 13 that's an important number in the secret societies and the bloodlines. And uh, so I think there's at least 13 uh, bloodlines uh, in the West. And you would probably see similar numbers uh, around uh, the world in different areas that they would have uh, families all around the world. So when we talk about the 13 families, that's just the European, Western European bloodlines. So there's many, many more. So you could imagine names like the Ingaroka uh, uh, out of South America. And most people don't realize that the bloodlines of the South American, Central American, and North American um, families weren't all wiped out. Uh, in Central and South America, both the Portuguese and the Spanish in the 1520s reinstated all of the rights to uh, the royal families and started to intermarry with many of them. So you have bloodlines all over the world that will be reasserting themselves, I think, as we get to the end, but there, I think we're going to see 10 major bloodlines that we see around the world, and then within their areas, there will be multiple other ones. So, I mean, who knows? And we have 70 nations that the angels in Psalms 82 uh, govern over that is numbered at 70 in Deuteronomy 32. So there could be maybe as many 70 bloodlines because they would have have representatives 
of the spirit's offspring as the visible ones, representing the invisible ones, ruling over those 70 nations and reporting to that specific angel responsible to uh, that that uh, nation. And then you'd have junior families that would branch off of that. And when I call, when I talk about a junior bloodline, it's an offshoot bloodline. So, for example, uh, you could say the Plantagenet, which is a very famous bloodline, they're a junior offshoot of the Anjou. And the Anjou could be an offshoot of the Ver family. So you have these off offshoots. And another example of a bloodline that we may see more visible, or at least the, the alleged bloodline, is, is you have the Putyanin bloodline of the original Scythians of Kiev that began the original um, Tsar bloodlines and then started up with the Putyanin and Vladimir the Great, uh, the Moscow branch. And then the Moscow branch, through intermarriage, was taken over by the Romanovs, who were a junior shoot. So you've got all of these senior and junior shoots of these bloodlines all over the world. We have President Xi in China, and Xi is of the Western Xi bloodline of the Shah dynasties, that's XIA, and they were created by the dragon creator gods um, and ran all of the royal dynasties until communism took over. And now you have a Xi back on the blood, uh, on the throne essentially there and uh, is establishing their empire. So you're going to have names uh, that you've not heard of before that will be stepping forward. We may not see all of the names, but they'll all be part of the bloodline. So start with the 13 sort of well-known ones, and there's different naming of the 13 in the West, and they're not the DuPonts, and they're not the Morgans. Those are pseudo-blue bloods, as they're known. And the major bloodlines uh, are in Europe. Uh, but you have to remember that below those 13, there are other major names. And so the Rothschilds, for example, they were brought in as the Bauer family to replace the Templar uh, banking outside the church. And so they changed their name to the Rothschild. And so I wouldn't even say their bloodlines are part of that. They're visible, uh, they're married into, but they're not really the pure bloodlines. They, they, they were married in. So um, you're going to have you know, bloodlines like the Rolo bloodline that are going to come out. And that would sort of come out in the St. Clair bloodline as, as one example and uh, other families like that. So you're going to have uh, many, many bloodline names that are sort of in the background that are going to resurface as we get closer to the end time, but there's going to be many and there are rivals. So, I mean, you can even imagine if you go down that secret society line where you have a family of 13 and below them, you have the council of 33 families. Then below that, you have the council of 300 families. And then you have the Rosicrucians. So you can just start to see how many families are involved because it's just this massive organization. And it's similar throughout the rest of the world. I mean, some of those dynasties aren't visible today, but those bloodlines are still there. And that's still where the real money is. And I think we're going to see them resurface. So many, many bloodlines is probably how I would phrase it. Awesome. I know you've done 
extensive research on that as well. So thank you so much for sharing that. I know that you can find a lot more information in your book, Genesis 6 Conspiracy. All right, let's uh, maybe get through one more question. We have about five minutes and then we'll get you one more time to let everyone know where they can find a copy of your book. Actually, let's do that first. Where could everyone find a copy of your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and part two that is getting ready to release here in the next couple months? If you're looking for The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, part one, go to The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, the, the number six, genesis6conspiracy.com. And on the website, there's a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. For part two, it's going to be on the same website. I'll have a generous excerpt of all 84 chapters. I'm just working on those chapter excerpts now that will be going up on a refurbishing of the uh, of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy website. There's a buy now page, so if you want to get a signed copy, um, there will be, um, there is up there right now a page for the U.S., a page for Canada, and a page for overseas. That'll be the same thing for Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2 when it's released. And I'll also have bundling pricing as well. So if you're buying one of each or you're buying multiples, there'll be uh, lower price points for, for doing that as well. And there's also connections on the Buy Now page to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, BarnesandNoble.com, and to the Kindle edition. And Part 2 will also be available on the Kindle edition as well. And it will be available on uh, most online bookstores and hoping to see both books back on shelves again uh, uh, after the release of the of the second book. So lots of ways to get a hold of the book, uh, but for a signed copy, uh, you gotta go to the website for that. And again, you can link over to Amazon and Barnes and Noble or to Kindle, or to Kindle off that website. I definitely encourage everyone to check that one out. So we have three minutes and we'll do a quick question and we'll try to finish that one uh, to, to the end of the show. Uh, thank you so much again, Brother Gary, for coming on. Uh, hopefully this will be a quick one. And they asked, where was the question that I chose? Okay, Harriet Boateng said, Mermaids and Sirens, what are your thoughts on them? Definitely connected, uh, definitely connected to um, bloodlines of the Queen of Heaven as well. Uh, in fact, the Book of Enoch will talk about the Sirens as being uh, the mothers who bore the original Nephilim uh, and that they died in their childbirth in doing so. And they became a type of demon and in this case uh, a mermaid sirens and mermaids are directly related in in mythology again i have a couple of documents on uh this for people if they want to get a hold of me it's not extensive information but enough to sort of connect the dots that 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 they are connected so yeah there's uh it's interesting how the secular and polytheist records sort of connect things that we get, you know, coming through some um, monotheist sources like the Book of Enoch. Um, so definitely they're connected. And I think that you have the mother goddesses or the mothers being raised to a mother goddess sort of aspect and sort of in sort of the same sort of allegorical style, uh, let's say, as uh, Nimrod and 
uh, Semiramis uh, being raised to being a rep not only just a representative of their gods, but also sort of an incarnation of their gods as they would present themselves. And of course, that's all got to do with that antichrist spirit incarnation aspect. So, yeah, sirens are uh, are uh, are one of those interesting little mysteries, uh, and they do not have humankind. Uh, best interest in heart. So anybody who deals with a siren or a mermaid, they're in for trouble. Excellent. Thank you very much for all the answers. Thank you for joining everyone and we will see you next time. Have a blessed afternoon or evening.